Genesis 2, uh, 5 through 9, and then Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. So hear God's word to us this morning. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was coming up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now from Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you pour your spirit out upon us, a spirit of understanding. Um, teach us what it means to be uh, living beings, creatures that are, have bodies and souls and spirits that you created. Um, help us to understand um, how we find our place in this world and in this creation as image bearers. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. To be created in the image of God is to be an embodied creature. It is not just to have a body, but to be a body. Now, most often when Christians have talked about the image of God and what it means, um, they have sought to find some immaterial quality in human nature, such as rationality or a kind of an essence like a spiritual soul. What has not often been part of the conversation is the body. And yet, when you turn to the descriptive account of the creation of human beings in Genesis 2, what you see is the body front and center. So let me read to you it again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust, from the, from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. And the man became a living being, a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. What's important to know about the story is that human beings were not created in another place and then put in a garden. They weren't created in heaven and then put in the garden. They're created from within the garden with the very same stuff that the, all the rest of creation was created from. And the image here of God as a creator is like that of a potter who gets down and he, he's working with clay, pulls together and shapes the figure of a man and then breathes into him the breath of life. Um, when the Bible focuses on God's creation of persons, it always has a human body in mind. It always has a human body in mind. 
Another key text, which I wish I had included as our, part of our, our reading this morning, comes from uh, the book of Job, chapter 10. Listen to what Job says. Job says, your hands fashioned me and made me. Remember that you have made me like clay, and you, have, and you will return me to the dust. And will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Notice the elements of the composition of the person that Job refers to. It's human anatomy, right? It's, bio, it's the biological processes of material stuff. It's, it's milk that curdles like cheese, which is an ancient way of thinking about how um, the male semen inseminates and fertilizes a woman's egg. That's really the, uh, an ancient way of thinking about that, right? I think a lot of time people think in our culture that the Bible's view of humanity is somehow in tension or in contradiction with a modern scientific account of human nature, but this is simply not the case. Certainly, the Bible is an ancient book written thousands of years ago. It doesn't have modern categories of medicine and science to talk about the human person. And yet, when the Bible does talk about persons, it always speaks of them in terms of physical bodies with material stuff. It's not immaterial things. And God, as the one who creates human beings, is involved in every aspect of what we today understand as natural processes and developments of the body. So to say that God created all things, as well as the body, is also to affirm that he also created all the natural laws which govern how bodies work and operate and grow. I think this is just an important understanding because you know, when we talk about God's creation or what makes us special, we sometimes want to look for some immaterial heavenly thing that's away from the body. But God is fully involved in all the processes in the minds of the biblical writers. Okay, so what does all this mean, though, for um, being created in the image of God? I mean, animals have bodies, and yet they're not image bearers. So what, how is the body connected to the image? I want to remind you of what I said last week in the introductory sermon on the image of God about what does the image of God mean in Genesis the image of God in Genesis is not about locating something special in human nature, like rationality or relationality or uh, some capacity or attribute that necessarily makes us distinct from the rest of non-human uh, non uh, animal life. The image of God has to do with how we are located in a special way as embodied creatures within creation. The image of God is about us knowing our place, in a sense, within creation. And I, I want to draw you to something that perhaps you, you just read by all the time in the, in the Genesis stories of chapter 2 especially. Two different times it says that God put the man in the garden. God put. Um, put him in the garden, right? There, there is a, an important aspect of what it means to be human in that God has located us in a certain way in relationship to the rest of things of creation. The person as embodied creature has a special relationship with the rest of creation and God. As we are to be the presence, um, to be the image of God is to, in a special way, presence God to the rest of creation. 
We, we are made of the dust. We have the same substance as the rest of creation. And yet what marks us as separated or distinct from it is simply that we're in a special relationship to presence God to creation. The only way to know our place in the story of creation as image bearers is an awareness of what it means to be an embodied creature. So, to bear the image of God is to find one's place, one's right place, um, within the cosmos. To, To not know our proper place as embodied creatures is to be lost in the cosmos, right? To be lost in the cosmos. Um, this, should, this, this phrase should recall for some of you the novel by Walker Percy by the name Lost in the Cosmos. And in that, um, it's not really a novel, <laughs> um, Percy gives us a very apt description of our identity crisis um, as modern human beings. And he observes that never in human history have we known more about the universe, naturally speaking. Never have we known more about the human body and how it works. And yet never have we been more confused and lost about what it actually means to be human. Right, so we know more medically about the human body, but we, as a culture, don't seem to know what are, what are humans and what are we for? And I would argue that part of our problem is a deep confusion about what it means to be embodied creatures. We are forgetful of the body or we fail to understand the body's meaning for our identity, or we diminish the significance of bodily existence. When, when this happens, we lose our, we get lost in the cosmos. We simply cannot understand how to find our place as image bearers in God's creation if we don't know what it means to be embodied creatures. Now I wanna talk for a moment about the alternative view of the body to that of the biblical one. I think there is a dominant, predominant view that is alternative to the biblical one. It's what I call the avatar view. I think our culture teaches us to think about the body as an avatar. Now, this word avatar is probably familiar with you to a certain extent, depending on, um, but it it has its origins in Hinduism, the, the Hindu religion. And an avatar in Hinduism was an incarnation of one of the gods. And mostly it was Vishnu. And Vishnu was considered to have either somewhere between 10 and 24 different incarnations, different avatars. And the avatars were the different bodies, and they were animals, a boar, uh, a tortoise, um, a fish, um, or human bodies, a wise man, or a king, or a dwarf. These are all different incarnations or avatars of Vishnu, and it all depended on the occasion. Now, this is a very different understanding of incarnation than the Christian one. Because in the Christian understanding of incarnation, Jesus' body is irreplaceable. He doesn't cast it aside when he goes to heaven. He doesn't change it out for another body or sort of upgrade it. His body is with him. And what's interesting here is that in the avatar understanding of the body, the body is always interchangeable with other bodies, right? And the body doesn't, might reveal something of the identity of the God, Vishnu, but the true identity is, is in the heavens, it's beyond. It's not necessarily you know, bound to one particular body. Now, our culture, I think, has thoroughly, in a very non-religious way, absorbed this imagination of the body. 
Think about Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, right? <laughs> I'm not just going to use the metaverse to, re to refer to virtual online reality. In the metaverse, we all have avatars, right? It might just be a little symbol of yourself, like a little picture of yourself that's called an avatar. But in the metaverse, there are no real bodies. There are no actual bodies. They're just avatars, right? And in the metaverse, whether it's social media, whether it's gaming, uh, whether it's just you know watching TV or whatever, there's no actual bodies. There's just avatars. And you can always change out one for another. You can improve your skin, as in Fortnite, right? Change your skin, upgrade it, modify it, right? This, again, is um, how we think about the body. What's key, though, is that our identities are no longer constrained by the limits of our actual bodies. Uh, some of you might remember um, James Cameron's film, also called Avatar. Right? It's, the, it's a film about how you know, uh, human beings go to a far-off planet of Pandora, and they want to colonize it and take all its natural resources. And one of the main characters is a disabled marine, and he's enlisted to, in this task. And he's given a simulated uh, body of the native people, which are the Navi people. Um, and he's able to navigate and blend in with the natives uh, through this simulated body. He falls in love, and he ends up actually changing sides and fighting on behalf of the Navi people against the, the colonizing Earthers. Right? The thing that's interesting is he does all of this while his body sits in a trailer on a military complex. And he's navigating it, right? I mean, this is a, you know, you might think of the, this is, this is an avatar understanding of the body. The body is like a container. The body is like Tupperware, right? <laughs> you know, it's a container for the real me, but it's not essential to the real me. This is how our culture tends to think about the body. Your body reveals something about your identity, but your identity is in no way bound in an essential way to your body. And there's no reason you can't change the container if you could do it, right? The body is a container for the real me, but it is not essential to the real me. That, in essence, is the avatar view of the body. And it is the dominant view of the body in our culture and manifests in all many different kinds of ways. The biblical understanding of the body, however, is very, very different. Our bodies are essential to our identities as people. And the Bible uses a variety of ways to talk about the composition of the human person. It uses body and soul and spirit and mind and heart. But never does the Bible, in a sense, have a break, break all these things apart. When the Bible talks about the spirit or the soul, you should understand that these are never things that are separable from the body. The spirit and soul language refers to the whole of the human person as we stand before God, and it means that we're never reducible completely to our bodies, and yet you can ne there are no disembodied souls in the Bible. Look, wherever you will, there are no disembodied souls in the Bible. Think about our sacred reading about the resurrection, right? It's the resurrection of the dead. What is raised? Is it souls that are raised? No, souls don't need to be raised. It's bodies that are raised. When the New Testament talks about redemption of our lives as human beings. It always has the body in view. It's never simply the resurrection or the redemption of our souls. 
the resurrection of the body. Because the body is inclusive of the whole of who I am. Right? This is so important. To turn away from your embodied existence as a creature is to turn away from yourself. This is so important. To turn away from your body is to turn away from yourself. This is a truth not just spiritually speaking, it is a biological truth. <laughs> it is a biological truth as well. To, seek your, to try to seek your true identity um, beyond your body, it's sort of like peeling an onion and you're thinking you think of yourself as an onion that needs to get peeled and at the center of that is the truth, the essence of who you are. But if you know anything about onions, like you peel one layer, there's another layer. You peel the other layer, you go, and you get down to the, to the nub, right? And it's just another layer of onion. And there's nothing in the middle. You're nothing without your body. Now, our, our problem as a culture, I think, is that it teaches us to search out our identity by thinking of ourselves as, as freely choosing individuals. And I think that many of the moral and spiritual problems that we face today are, are, are rooted in an understanding of the human person that so exalts the person as a, a determining, freely choosing will over against the body. We see ourselves as atomized wills, self-determining individuals. The most important thing about me as a person is simply that I am free free to choose who I want to be, right? This is at the heart of how our culture teaches us how to find our place in the cosmos. To be a self is that you are free to be who you want to be, right? But the problem is this, you have a body. <laughs> and the body is always getting in, in, in between you and your freedom. The body has constraints and limits, limits who we are. And this is, I think, part of the reason we feel so alienated from our bodies, um, because our desire for unfettered freedom is always running up against the restrictive nature of our bodies. So in response, what we do is we, we try to overcome our bodies, we try to emancipate our bodies and modify them in various ways, or we just sort of live our, we go to the metaverse, right? <laughs> we go to the metaverse, we go to virtual reality, because there, there are no limits. There are no limits to who I can be. There are no limits to my own self-expression. And I think it just, I just wanna, I'm not against being online or, you know, um, we, that's just part of daily life for, for all of us. But I, I do wanna just think about it. Too much time online. Too much time gaming, watching TV. Too much time on social media, on a screen. It is an escape from the body. It is an escape from the body. It is a retreat from the body. And something I start saying to my kids more and more is, live in the real. Live in the real. You will not find your true self in the metaverse. You will not grow into a mature human being in the metaverse. <laughs> you will just get more and more lost in the cosmos. The Bible orients us to identity formation in a very different way than our culture does. You only find yourself through your body. You only find your place in the, context, in, in the context of creation in a particular body, particular time, particular place, and particular relationships. That's the only way you ever find your true self.
Um, and finding your identity starts when you see your body as a gift from God. That's the beginning of true self-knowledge. And knowing who you are is to understand your body is a gift from God. And yes, our bodies are broken, right? <laughs> they don't work the way they're supposed to. They're imperfect. But despite this, your body is not a curse. It is a gift. Your body is not inferior to your real self. Your body is created by God, and God says it is very good. Recall the, the beautiful words of the psalmist of Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame has not hidden you from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none of them, there was none of them. No matter how much you might dislike and even hate your body, no matter how imperfect and sick it might feel or be, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not a cosmic accident. <laughs> Even if you were not wanted by your own parents, even if you feel like you were an accident, as fearfully and wonderfully made, you are wanted by God. This is the starting point. <laughs> it has to be the starting point for your understanding of what it means to be a human being. And beginning of your identity is that my body is a gift from God. Now, to receive our bodies as a gift from God is, is, is a very humbling thing. Because first and foremost, it is a recognition that I am not my own creator. I am not my own creator. I'm not a self-creator. Almost all the things about me um, that are significant to who I am, to my identity, are things in which I had no choice. The things that will shape who I will become in the future, my identity, are things in which I had no say. I did not choose my parents. I did not choose my sex, whether as male or female. I did not choose my race. I did not choose my socioeconomic status. I did not choose what language I would grow up speaking. I did not choose what nation I was born into. I did not have a choice over how tall or short I was, how skinny or fat, how smart or beautiful. I had no choice in any of these things whatsoever. Part of wisdom in life is learning to accept and to embrace all of those creaturely conditions of my life and body as good, as what God has providentially ordained for me. I mean, remember what the psalmist says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet none of them existed, right? <laughs> your body is a gift from God. You had little choice over the majority of the things that make you you. 
This is not to deny that our bodies are broken, that the effects of sin and evil upon us are real. However, our experiences that disappoint and that hurt should not lead us to hate ourselves, to hate our bodies, or to seek an escape from our bodies, but rather ought to turn us to God in hope as the one who promised the resurrection and the full redemption of our bodies. When we learn to take our bodies seriously as central to our identity, we are also confronted that we are dependent people. To have a body is to be a dependent creature. Think about it. Dependent not just on God as the one who gives life, but dependent on other people. A human being cannot survive outside the womb um, on its own, at least for 10 years, and even then, that's, you know, <laughs> questionable how long it takes for a human being to be able to live on their own without the, the help of parents, a father and a mother, to feed and to protect and to nurture and to provide. And when we, even when we move out of our, our parents' households, it's not as if all of a sudden we become independent and we don't need things. Our needs simply change and become more complicated, Right? And one of the things we all need is, is connection, social embodiment, love. We all need love, which means we need other people in our lives. And even as we grow right, towards the end of our lives, what happens? We need other people more and more. And to the point where, towards the very end of our lives, on our deathbed, we become like the infants that came out of the womb, in which we can do nothing for ourselves. There's just this little brief span in the midst of our lives in which we could say we're independent and stand our own two feet, but even then, we're not really independent. See, all of these are just undeniable truths of what it means to be a human being, to have a body. And yet, I think our culture teaches us to live in denial of these realities. Our culture teaches us to define ourselves in terms of our independences rather than of our dependences. And in the name of being free and independent, we often neglect, resist, or even, in some case, cut off relationships of dependence. We seek our identity through being independent, and we neglect the fact that as bodily creatures, we're always dependent. We always need other people. Brothers and sisters, your body tells a story. Your body tells a story. Every body tells a unique story of a person created in God's image. This story has a beginning and an end. And the beginning of the story is your birth, and the end of the story is your death. And the story has numerous different chapters. And these chapters represent the different phases of your life, of growth, at different times and seasons as you grow, mature, and age, and grow old. And each chapter has different geographical locations, different places and cities that you lived, and each of these places has different cultures and social ethoses. And the whole story is filled with all kinds of people. Lots and lots of people. In which you're always related. Your parents, your siblings, your friends and your enemies, your coworkers and your neighbors, pastors and presidents and grandchildren. Our lives are filled with more people that we can remember, but every single one of these relationships that we find ourselves in that are significant touch us and our bodies in unique ways, shape our existence for good and for bad. 
The body tells a story. We carry in our bodies the story of all these things, all the places we've lived, all the people we've known, all the growth, all the things. Our body carries these things quite literally. Not just, this is not just a spiritual truth. It's actually a biological truth of the body. In his book, um, The Body Keeps Score, the Dutch psychologist uh, Bessel van der Kolk, um, he, he explores the way in which traumatic experiences in life um, get inscribed or encoded within our bodies. And he argues that trauma physiologically restructures and rewires the brain in terms of how it operates and then how a person will perceive reality. And as he talks about in his book, his kind of journey of research began as he was working with Vietnam veterans and uh, vets with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And what he couldn't figure out was that many of the veterans he was working with, these are you know, 10, you know, 15 years removed from the war, uh, happily married with children, thriving in careers, and yet they were still deeply affected and even at times controlled by the traumatic events they experienced in war. <clears throat> and what he began to discover as he you know, continued on this, this course of research and, and um, seeing veterans and also the victims of abuse, and also in the light of developing sort of um, science of the brain, was that trauma actually rewires and changes the chemistry of the human mind and the brain which then becomes manifest in all kinds of different mental health disorders. And, you know, research now shows very clearly, um, there's lots of studies on this, it shows that especially for children who have experienced early childhood trauma, whether it's through neglect or abuse or abandonment, this fundamentally rewires their brains. And so learning disabilities and behavioral issues in school is almost always, oftentimes, not always, a kind of an acting out of the body of earlier childhood traumas or ongoing traumas, right? The body keeps score. That's, what he, that's the idea. The body keeps score of all the things that, that we've, we've, we experience. But it's not, just, it's not just traumatic experiences of which the body remembers. It's healthy ones as well. The love and the nurture a child gets from his father or mother or the belonging and the recognition or the love that a person receives in a healthy community, these things wire and rewire our brains for flourishing and stability in life. The body keeps score of trauma as well as it keeps score of blessing. It remembers rejection and hate as well as love and belonging. There is no escaping the body. I think, again, the, these are not like there's a spiritual body and there's a spiritual thing and then there's the, the biological body. No, the way God created us is actually is just this complex interaction of material and spiritual realities that cannot be separated out from one another. Our bodies tell a story. They tell the story of all the good things and all the bad things that have happened to us, all the good things and all the bad things that we've done in our bodies. There's no escape in the body. It keeps a record. So we can't flee the body. <laughs> you can't escape the body in order to deal with the problems. So what do you do? 
The redemption of our bodies depends upon the gift of another body. See, there, there's the gift of the body, of our own bodies, but there's another gift of the body, and it's the body of Jesus Christ. And remember, the Christian understanding of incarnation is very different from the avatar understanding. Jesus' body is irreplaceable. Jesus' body, it's not interchangeable. And even as the ascended Lord right now, he is still Jesus of Nazareth. He still has the same Palestinian male body that he had when he was born of Mary. And when he accomplished salvation for us, he did it in the body. He did it in the body. The whole of Christian understanding of salvation from Jesus' birth through life and death, resurrection, ascension, bears witness to God's full commitment to the goodness of the body and his promise to redeem our bodies. We talk about being baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. I hope that you hear that phrase a little differently now. Remember, our bodies tell a story, and so does Jesus' body. You remember before his disciples, after the resurrection, when Thomas doubted, Jesus said, look at my body. Do you see this? Do you see the nail marks in my hands? Jesus' body tells the story of our salvation, right? See, all of our bodies have a story, good and bad. But the way our bodies are healed has become part of his body and part of his story. His body kept score, and yet it is precisely in the history of those events of his body that we have our healing and our redemption. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for sending your son, being born of a woman. We thank you for the incarnation and your commitment to us. Lord, all of us in different ways here are... (laughs) We struggle with our bodies. It doesn't do, they don't do what we want them to do. We often feel trapped or oppressed or inferior. But Lord, help us to know deep down that our bodies are gifts from you and that however imperfect or broken they might be, that when we are in Jesus Christ, you will redeem and you will resurrect. We give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen.